Good morning, church. Good morning, church. Come on. We're in God's house. Let me hear you. Let me hear you. We got missionaries in from way overseas. None of us are over there doing that hard work. Give it up. All right. Uh, what a joy to be with you all this morning. I'm just blessed to have the chance to get to worship with you. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7. Mark it. Go to Nehemiah chapter 2. We're in the last part of Nehemiah. This morning we're continuing our sermon series called Rebuild. Catch this. Hearts and lives with broken down walls are as vulnerable as cities are when their walls were broken down in the time of Nehemiah. So we're talking about and looking at the life of Nehemiah and how this man addressed the biggest problem with God's city, the city of Israel, uh, Jerusalem, excuse me, at the time of this writing. We're looking at this man who addressed this problem. We're going to understand how some of the things he has done to address this problem of broken down walls in the city of Jerusalem. We can take some of those same steps in our personal lives to rebuild and fortify our walls. So Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7 gives us a good clear sense that it is okay for us to look at the lives of men in the scriptures and imitate those men's lives. Hebrews 13, 7, the Bible says this, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. What we know, because we have the ending of the story, is that Nehemiah was successful. We're looking at how his success was a result of his way of life. And then we are taking a very close look at how our way of life could be lived closer to the way that Nehemiah himself actually lived. Let's turn to our Bibles now to Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 11. I'm going to read to you through verse 20. The Bible says this, I went to Jerusalem. This is Nehemiah speaking here. And after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles, or officials, or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of God on me, and what the king had said to me. They replied, 
Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But then Sanballat, and to, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonites official and Geshem the Arab heard about it. They mocked and ridiculed us. What's this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Let me give you a little bit of context here. Nehemiah was second, essentially, in command to King Artaxerxes, the most powerful person in the known world at the time of this writing. He was cupbearer. He would have lived in the palace, eaten the food the king ate, drank what the king drank. And he heard a report from Jerusalem that said the walls of the city were torn down. And so he mourns and fasts and prays for a number of months. And then he asks the king if he can go back to Jerusalem to help rebuild. The king grants his request, sending with him letters that granted him safe passage on the way to Jerusalem and also gave him a lot of supplies to make sure his journey was successful. Nehemiah had a specific idea of what would be required for his success. So our story picks up as Nehemiah and those with him are headed back to Jerusalem. Now, the the distance from Susa the capital city where he's staying, to Jerusalem would have been about 800 miles. If you can imagine what traveling was like in Nehemiah's day, this guy wouldn't have had air conditioning or top 40 radio or a, a cruise control that you could set on about 80 and make the journey in about 12 hours. This would have been mostly on foot with little supplies, having to find ways to eat and sleep and be protected from the elements. If they could average 20 miles a day on foot, traveling 800 miles, you can get the sense of how many days that would have taken. Now, if you're like me, the second I pull into the destination after an 800-mile trek on foot, I want to hang out for a couple of weeks. I want to eat some food. Nehemiah likely had family that was still in Jerusalem when he receives the report from Jerusalem. He describes the person as his brother. So he probably would have, if I were him, I certainly would have wanted to visit family, eat a little bit, catch up, figure out what Aunt Sally was doing and Uncle Joe and talk to the cousins and just relax. Nehemiah waits three days and then he goes out at night. Now, this is Nehemiah responding to the problem of the walls in Jerusalem being broken down. After, after a long journey and three days rest, he decides he's going to do what's required and go out at night to really assess what's happened to the wall. And if we're really going to respond effectively to the problems that are in our lives... If we're really going to do something about those problems, if we're really going to find a way to resolve those issues, then sometimes, friends, we have to understand that we're going to live through some long nights. We got to be prepared for long nights as Christians who are trying to transform the problems in their lives. I'm reminded of a couple of places in the scripture where we get a sense that God's people's success depends on their willingness to tolerate long nights. 
If you'd, if you'd read the story in Joshua chapter 10, I'm not going to read it today for the sake of time, you'd find this, this experience that the Israelites had fighting alongside this other tribe kingdom thing called the Gibeonites. Now, if you'd back up to Joshua chapter 9, what you'd find is that the Gibeonites had heard that the Israelites were these powerful guys blessed by God. And the Gibeonites lived really close to the Israelites. So the Gibeonites get this idea, hey, we're going to go and visit the Israelites and deceive them into thinking that we live far away. And we're going to tell them that we've heard how powerful that they are. And we're going to ask them to sign a peace, to sign a peace treaty with us so that they'll be locked into not trying to conquer us if they ever should choose to do so in the future. So even though they were basically neighbors, the Gibeonites put on these old clothes and loaded up old moldy bread and took these old animals that really looked weather-beaten and road-weary. And they made this really short journey to Israel. And they're like, hey, guys, look. We're, we live in a faraway country. You're probably never going to ever see us. But we've heard you guys are powerful and blessed by God, and we're not, and we want you to sign a peace treaty with us. So the Israelites sign it. Well, come to find out, the Gibeonites are practically their neighbors. And Joshua's like, yo, you guys deceived us. And Joshua goes over there with a small army, and they're like, please, you signed a treaty with us. Don't, we, I know we lied to you, but please have mercy on us. And Joshua's like, look, we did sign a treaty. We're not going to do anything, even though you've been deceptive. Well, other kings in the area hear about the deception of the Gibeonites and that they've entered into a treaty with Israel. And Gibeon was this powerful kind of really important city at this time. And so five kings descend on Gibeon to attack it and destroy it. And who does Gibeon call when they need somebody to have their back so they won't get overthrown? But Israel. Now, the Israelites could have said, yo, you guys deceived us. That's on you. We're staying put. Good luck dealing with these other kings. But instead, the Israelites marched to the aid of the Gibeonites, people who had deceived them. And Scripture teaches us that the march to aid the Gibeonites requires an all-night-long commitment to march to their aid. You see, if the Israelites hadn't been willing to commit to march all night, they probably wouldn't have gotten to Gibeon in time to really assist this nation that had deceived them. Yet they choose to march all night long to come to the aid of this particular group of people. And sometimes in our lives, we're going to have to march all night or deal with an all-night vigil of prayer or scripture or study or come to someone's aid who's in need and spend all night praying and encouraging and loving on people. And we don't just have those stories in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, if you read the Gospels, you understand that Jesus, before he's betrayed and then crucified, prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he brings his inner circle in and he says, guys, look, I need you to pray and watch. And, and he draws away by himself to pray. And these guys are praying all night long. But even some of Jesus' closest followers fall asleep while he's praying and his life is on the line. It's a tragedy to me that so often we can decide we want to do something about the problems in our life. But the second effort is required... The second we have to sacrifice a little bit of comfort or maybe stay up all night, we're out. Not so with Nehemiah. He comes off this 800-mile journey, rests for a little bit, and then he goes out at night. 
And he spends all night looking at the wall, preparing himself to be successful in his mission. You see, Nehemiah was willing to really work harder than most people were willing to work. He saw the problem and he owned the problem as his own. Most of us in life are experts in problem solving. I don't know if you knew that. You're probably an expert in problem solving. But you're actually an expert in solving other people's problems. You've met these individuals, right? Man, they can give you the best advice about how to deal with what's going on in your life. But to try to deal with what's going on in theirs is a whole completely qualitatively different scenario. But you know what? Some of us are those individuals at times. We got all the knowledge and awareness about how to help someone else deal with their problem, but we're not willing to do the hard work of taking ownership of our own stuff and spending some long nights figuring out how to deal with them. Not so with Nehemiah. He's willing to do the hard work of owning the problem and spend his nights dealing with what needs to be dealt with. Not only, not only was Nehemiah willing to deal with an all-night scenario and work harder all night than most were willing to work, he was also willing to work longer. Nobody else was willing to invest the time, energy, or effort required to really get the scope of the problem and really do something about the problem. And when he sees the, the scope of everything that needs to be changed, he works smarter than everybody else had apparently worked. We don't have the story in the Scriptures But my best guess is that at some point, somebody tried to rebuild little bits and pieces of the wall. But because of their method or because of their approach, they weren't successful. The walls had been torn down for a long time. So Nehemiah finally gets to a place where he's willing to work harder and work longer and work smarter to deal with the problem at hand. And as a result, he begins to experience some success. Now, as I was reading this, I thought not only do we need to prepare for long nights, but in responding to the problems in our lives, we have to be willing to go where few are willing to go. If you look at our text this morning in verse 12, Nehemiah says, I set out during the night with a few others. You see, to really deal with problems in life, sometimes it involves some nasty stuff. To really see what's going on in people's minds and hearts. To see the fallenness of humanity. Or to have to expose our own fallenness to those around us. Few people, friends, unfortunately are willing to take that journey with so many of us. But that doesn't stop Nehemiah. He finds those few and he presses forward. In the scriptures, we get this story. In Acts of a guy named John Mark. John Mark was a traveling companion of Paul and Barnabas. We actually in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10 realize that Barnabas and John Mark are cousins. So the apostle Paul and, and Barnabas are traveling around with John Mark. And as they're headed to a place in Acts chapter 13 and verse 13, John Mark leaves Paul and Barnabas and heads back to Jerusalem. Those who would comment on this phenomenon say that Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, probably uses more tact at this moment than anybody else who would have recorded this scenario. Luke doesn't say anything like, man, John Mark, who was just lazy, or John Mark, who was just scared, or John Mark, who really wasn't committed to the mission, decided to turn around and desert the guys who were going about doing the good work of the Lord. 
He just says, John Mark leaves. You see, when we're really on God's mission, and we're really trying to do what God's asking us to do, not simply in evangelism, not simply in rebuilding our communities or our towns, but in renovating our own hearts, people will desert us along that journey. Not only do you need to find the few that are willing to go with you and grow with you, but you've also got to be willing to go some of the distance alone. Sometimes in life, really, it's just going to be you and God as you respond to the issues in your life. But you've got to keep pressing forward. You've got to be willing to go through the rough terrain. You've got to be willing to go where the ground is uneven or the hill seems maybe too hard to climb. You've got to be willing to go where the battle seems to be raging. Because God always promised you help in time. And so many of us were committed to to responding to the problems in life. And we understand it's going to take some investment of time and and energy. And we understand that there's going to be some long nights, uh, some sleepless nights, some desperate nights that, that, that just take the life out of us, yet we're still committed. And we find that person or two that's willing to accompany us on that transformational journey. And even when those people desert us, some of us still press on. But there comes a point where men and women of God fatigue and they turn back. And as I was, as I was looking at this text closely, I thought, you know what, that's such an important piece of our transformational journeys is not to turn back. Not to do a U-turn back towards the old life. Remember that journey that Nehemiah took was 800 miles on foot. Certainly there would have been a lot of opportunities for Nehemiah to have thought, man, I am second in command to the king, the guy who rules the known world. And not only that, but man, I was at the palace, I was having dinner, I was at his table, I had influence, people respected me, and now I'm out here in the middle of nowhere with this group of people going to an impoverished, poor city. Certainly that would have played on his mind. Yet he still pushes on. In, In the book of Luke, Jesus makes two comments about the need to keep Moving forward. The first that comes to mind for me is Luke 17 and verse 32. This is Jesus speaking and he warns those who are listening to him to remember Lot's wife. Now, if you know the story found in the book of Genesis, Lot lived in a town that was as pagan and immoral as any possibly could have been. There are actually kind of some sister cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot's story is pretty twisted if you'd read the whole story through its conclusion. But at some point, God sends angels to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of how immoral it is. The city figures out there are two new men in Lot's house and they're trying to break down the door to fornicate with these men that are in the house. Lot's begging him not to. Eventually, the angels strike all those people who are at his doorway blind. And they say, Lot, get yourself and your family out of here because we are going to destroy this God-forsaken place. So Lot and his family do just that. They get out of the house. They get to a new area. And the second they get there, the Scripture tells us that fire and brimstone from heaven literally rain down on Sodom and Gomorrah and the city is destroyed. 
Now, the one thing that the angels did tell Lot and his wife is that when they get out of the city, they should not turn around and look back. And Lot's wife does just that, and immediately she turns into a pillar of salt. Also, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus, this is the chapter where, where Luke records... Jesus' statement that if you want to be his disciple, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after Jesus. At the tail end of Luke chapter 9, Jesus makes a profound statement. Here's the context. He tells three different people at the end of Luke chapter 9 to come and follow him. The first guy says, Lord, I'll follow you. And Jesus says, well, wait a second, though. The Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I don't have a place. And the second guy says, Lord, I'll follow you, but before I do, let me go back and bury the dead of my family. And Jesus says, no way, man. Let the dead bury their own dead. And then the third guy says, Jesus, I'll follow you, but just let me go back and and let me tell my family goodbye. I just want to talk to them one more time before I follow you. You see, in each of these instances, as Jesus is calling people to follow him, people are turning away from Jesus back to their life. A place, a burial situation, or goodbyes to family. Now, in the array of things that could cause a person to turn back, these are certainly the more honorable types of things, right? That you want to go bury your dead or, or that you want to say goodbye to your family. So many of us, friends, hear me right here. Listen to this. So many of us, the things that cause us or influence us to turn away from Jesus Christ are sinful, miserable, selfish, self-centered types of things. And in this context, Jesus tells these guys, No man, having put his hands to the plow and looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. You see, when Nehemiah is on his journey to the city of Jerusalem, he has a forward focus. He is literally looking forward. For me, this is about mindset. Nehemiah has a vision of what he needs to do, and he's thinking about how he needs to do it, and he's not allowing his mind to get pulled back to the city that he is leaving. Some of you, under the sound of my voice, your mind is constantly focused on that old life, or that old sin, or that old mistake, and not always for the purpose of fantasizing about what it would seem like if I got entangled again in that sinful stuff. Sometimes for us, it's just looking back and feeling guilt or shame, or misery, or sadness on things that have happened in the past. Sometimes that can be the thing that keeps you from looking forward as much as fantasizing about pleasure in the old life. God would say, keep focusing forward. Keep looking forward. The past, God would tell any of us, is His territory, not ours. And when we're really looking forward, it'll be easier for us to move forward. When I have the right outlook, I'm going to have the right direction. And this is what we absolutely see play out in Nehemiah's life. He's obviously focused on the mission ahead of him. And his behavior, action, and attitude all align with his direction of thought. 
So that's my encouragement to you this morning. Don't, don't put your hand to the plow and decide to do something for Jesus to really look at your problems and areas of your life that have been demolished by sin or by spiritual warfare or by someone else's sin. Don't turn back to those same things, but keep looking forward so you can keep moving forward. Now at this point in our story, things turn a little bit. Nehemiah has gotten to Jerusalem and he's had a long night and he's stuck with the mission through this long night. He's been willing to go where few have been willing to go. He does take a few, then he goes alone, even to the roughest, nastiest places. And then after all of those things, Nehemiah doesn't turn back. You have to imagine that what he saw when he got there was worse than what he anticipated seeing. And so he finally comes to the group of people who he's going to depend on for help And he casts a clear vision to these guys. Let's pick up the story here. In verse 17, Nehemiah says, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. In the book of Proverbs, we get this idea of the importance of a clear vision, a clear sense of direction. If, if I combine what translators say Proverbs 29, 18 actually means, it would be that we have to have clarity of vision. Now, the idea of vision in Proverbs 29, 18 can refer to we got to have a sense of our direction. That can be what the vision means. It can also mean that we got to have a sense of what God's word, the revelation of God, would demand of us. But either way, we got to have clarity about direction. We got to have clarity about mission. We got to have clarity in our vision. And Nehemiah certainly has that, and he makes that clear to the people that he's depending on to be a part of this rebuilding process. So he clearly communicates the vision to them, and he does two things that are really, really important in, in communicating vision. The first thing he does is he includes himself in the transformational rebuilding process. He says, guys, look, you can clearly see the gates of Jerusalem are burned with fire and the wall is torn down. Who must rebuild? We have to rebuild. I'm going to work together with you guys to accomplish this mission. And not only does he appeal to his audience as though he's included with them, he also appeals to them internally rather than externally. Now most of us, when we're trying to lead people, we're trying to motivate them externally. Let me give you an example of how this plays out in my own life. You ready? have a seven, a five, and a three-year-old. They are learning about money. So to get one of them to make their beds, it's really easy for me to motivate them externally by saying, Bud, sis, Jude, you get a quarter today if you'll go make your beds. Now that's an external source of motivation. I'm going to give them, incentivize them outside themselves to take part in the activity I want them to take part in. Now, let me tell you how effective this is at motivating them long term. The second that the reward has been given, they completely disengage in the bed and the bedroom becomes a war zone again. Right? Until I put the external motivating source back into the equation. 
Guys, look, you go back in there and clean up your room again, I'll give you a little bit more uh, money, quarters. So we're going to have to move from quarters to 50-cent pieces to dollar bills, and then I'm just going to hope that the Lord himself returns and frees me from that oscillating pattern of constant increase, right? External motivation doesn't really work in in, in the world. It, It does motivate people momentarily, but the way to really motivate people is internally. What's Nehemiah say to these guys? We are in disgrace. And it's not going to be this sexy, trendy, popular new process to rebuild these walls. It's going to be nasty. It's going to be hot. You're probably going to get injured. You're going to want to turn back. But if you'll do this thing with me, we won't be in disgrace any longer. And if you would take a minute to try to do research on some of the best leaders throughout history, guys like Abraham Lincoln, even men like Martin Luther King Jr. or Winston Churchill, what you'd find is that when these guys appealed to an audience, they didn't offer some cash incentive or some populist rhetoric. It was simply that we are disgraced, and if we'll do this thing differently, then we will transform. And when people are motivated intrinsically, when they're motivated from within, they can be easily, more easily influenced to stay with the mission. Now, here's the truth about each of you guys. Are you ready? Listen to me here. Are you hearing me? Every single person in this room under the sound of my voice is a leader. All of you listening online, you are all leaders. Every single person in this auditorium today is a leader. Now, your leadership role might be very unclear. And you might not be very certain who it actually is that you're leading. But I want you to know that you are leading somebody. It could be your spouse. It could be your children. It could be your neighbor. It certainly could be your coworker, And it could be people in this church that you don't even know are watching you as a leader, as someone they might even be trying to imitate. You are a leader. And I don't want you to ever forget that. Never let the enemy convince you that what I'm telling you about you right now is not true. And because you are a leader, you've got to communicate your vision and your mission and your direction clearly in what you say and in how you live so the people that are looking at you, following after you, can follow along the way easily. One of my favorite leadership quotes, I wrote it down for you today, is by a guy named John Maxwell. He says, leaders are people who know the way, who go the way, and who show the way. So in your life, you've got to get clarity about where you're headed. You are a leader, so you do need that clarity. And not only do you need clarity about where you're going, but you've got to actually go that way. The way you say you're going, you've got to take that way. And actually walk your talk. But don't just do it all alone. Use your influence. Use your impact. Assume that the community you're a part in, God puts you in for a reason. And be willing to tell others how to follow along that pathway. Now some of you are out there under the sound of my voice this morning and you're thinking, I don't think I got what it takes to be a leader, Trent. 
Now, can I be real candid with you? I hope you're all paying attention. I hope you're paying attention online. You don't. You, I don't think you do have what it takes to be a good leader. And, and by you, I'm meaning to include myself in that comment as well. I, I don't think Trent has what it takes to be a good leader. And I don't think Nehemiah did either. But Nehemiah shared with us the secret to his success, and it's just so beautiful. Nehemiah was prepped for long nights. He knew that he'd have to be willing to go where few were willing to go. He knew he couldn't turn back. He knew he needed to communicate clear vision. But he also knew that of himself, he didn't have what it takes, just like you and just like me. So in verse 18, he shares with us the secret of his success. Listen to these beautiful words. Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 18. He's checked out the wall. He stayed committed, going where few are willing to go. He hasn't turned back. He's communicated the vision clearly. And people got to be wondering, how in the world are we going to do this thing, man? He says in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 18, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me. He said, guys, God's hand is on me. I feel the hands of God on me. He is with me. He is for me. If we will do this together, God's hands will be on us and He will give us success. If God's hands on Nehemiah, He's going to be successful. In in Psalm 37 and verse 4, the psalmist says, Delight yourself in the Lord and He'll grant you the desires of your heart. And I want you to mark in your Bible Psalm 37, 5. Psalm 37, 5 says clearly, God will do this thing. God's going to do it. If His hand is on you, the thing He leads you to, He will lead you through. But you can't do it without the hand of God on you. Thank God that with God's hand on you, you cannot fail. Psalm 1, the writer of Psalm 1 says it like this. Hear this. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or sits in the seat of scornful or stands in the way of sinners. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate day and night. Here you go. If a man does those things, then he will be like a tree planted by rivers of water, which brings forth its fruit in its season. That man's leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he does will prosper. You, friends, you got to hear me today. You can have the same hand of God on you in May 2016 that Nehemiah had on him when he travels back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls in the city of God. Nehemiah couldn't have done it in his own strength, but when God is for him, who could stand against him? And there is nobody and no thing on the face of this earth in the universe that can stand against you when the hand of God is upon you. Can I get a witness this morning? Come on. There is nothing and no one that can stand against you when the hand of God is on you. Ah! That's good preaching, man. You know, it just was so encouraging to me 
as I was studying through this, you know, I was thinking, man, man, even me in my ministry, you know, you look at these guys like the Apostle Paul, right, or Peter, or even any of those other guys, Timothy, Titus, we don't know these guys. Man, you can tell God had his hand on those guys, can't you? I mean, he, God just did incredible things through those guys. God did incredible things through Nehemiah. And it's not because these guys were voted most likely to prosper or had all the talent and ability in the world. It's because God's hand was on them. So comforting to me to know that God's hand can even be on me. And when his hand is on me, just like when his hand is on you, you will be fruitful. Nothing can stand against you and you will be fruitful. So as you're responding to that one particular problem, the biggest one, the one that causes you the most grief and keeps you up the longest nights, that God's hand is going to be on you as you interface with that problem and that nothing will stand against you. And in that problem itself, you will be fruitful. You will be. I don't know what the need is in your life, but for God's hand to be on you, you have got to be born again. Jesus was very clear about that in the Gospels. And if you've not been baptized into Christ, we're going to give you an opportunity today to take that step in responding to the problems in your life. And maybe it's another issue. I don't know what it could possibly be, but if you'll take a step and you'll allow us to pray over you and encourage you and walk alongside you, you'll find God's hand on you and you will find yourself fruitful and successful in whatever it is that you do. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that any here who need to be encouraged, any online who need to be encouraged, that they would all reach out to you right now. And I ask that they would just pray that you, your hand would be on them like Nehemiah prayed and that they'd be willing to fast and walk through long nights and go where few are willing to go and not turn back. And when they're ready to really take on the problem, I pray they communicate that to the world clearly. And then I ask God that, that they would feel your hand on them the way Nehemiah felt your hand on him, the way we can feel your hand on us even today. So I ask that any who need to respond would take that opportunity and we pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.